Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. We continue to hear much about climate change. We thought it would be a very good idea to take a closer look at some of the details insofar as how climate change might or is actually impacting on our health. Lynn Ringelberg is a professor emeritus in pediatrics at the University of South Florida, and she has also actively worked over the years on these issues in her positions with the Physicians for Social Responsibility, both as the past president of the national organization and as the co-founder of Florida PSR. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And if I could just add one other thing that I like to put in my bio, because I think it's important. Sure. I'm a retired colonel in the Army, United States Army, and I have spent my entire professional career in academics and in the military protecting the health of my patients and our soldiers and their families. So I think this is really an important topic. It's also important for the military as well as our civilian population. We will keep it in. That's very important. So let's begin. This is a huge topic with many parts, and even some of it has political issues. But let's start with a core question. You are a pediatrician, and what are your concerns about the impact of these changes on your patients and their families? Very large topic, but a good entry. Yeah, it is a large topic, and and you're so right. There's so many things to talk about. I think, first of all, for children, the World Health Organization not too long ago came out with a statement that just really caught my attention that 88%, I've also seen it 85, but 85 to 88% of the climate change-related health and disease burden will fall to children less than five years of age. That's really pretty scary, isn't it? With children, they're not miniature adults. I've been trying to teach people that for 40 years. They have their own issues, thankfully. They're anatomically different, of course. They're physiologically different. Their immune systems are different. They think differently. Their brains, their little brains are still in you know, developing from the fetus to the young baby to the child to the teenager. So they're going through various vulnerable windows of development. They're metabolically different. And they need, at a young age especially, they need a parent or some type of a caregiver to direct them, to help them, to keep them safe. And often during a climate incident, whether it be a flooding or a hurricane or heat, they may not have that adult person to help them. So they're, they're really very vulnerable. And kids, as I'm sure a lot of your audience knows, they breathe faster than adults, so they tend to bring more pollutants into their lungs from the air. They're lower to the ground where more pollutants tend to settle, whether it's ozone or other pollutants, especially from the burning of fossil fuels. So I think there are a lot of things that we need to think about when we're talking about climate and health and children. One of my goals is always to make sure that there's a pediatrician or someone who understands the uniqueness of children to be on local city or county or state or national uh, policy makers so they understand this when they're making policy. That's an interesting point. Do a lot of pediatricians volunteer to do this? Is it part of their advocacy mindset to go to their local groups or is it more rare than not, if you know the answer? Well, uh, unfortunately, I think it's a little more rare than not, but I'm seeing a little uptick here. I think the health professions overall are starting to understand that climate change is real. It's happening now. It's affecting their patients' health, and it's only going to worsen in the decades to come. So I do a fair amount of lecturing here in Florida, and it's often a little difficult to get the younger pediatricians and other physicians because they're so busy. You know, they're so busy with their practices and their families. And I'm usually able to get 
few. I'm hoping as time goes on, we'll get more pediatricians involved. You have to be taught how to be an advocate and kind of get out of your comfort zone and, and talk to the city council or the county commissioners or the legislators on things that, that are important for the health of children. So I think it's an educational process. I think we have to move sort of quickly on it because we don't have a lot of time. Which we'll get to in, in a few minutes. One of the things that's necessary is a little bit of a definition. When we talk about climate change, are we also talking about pollution from human activity or is it separate than the natural cycles that we, you know we've had ice ages before on our planet how much of what are we seeing is a natural cycling and how much of it is the result of something that you and I as people can do something about I think probably more of the latter something that we have to do something about we as citizens of the world have to do something about you know that earth climate it's changed throughout history I had read recently in the last 650,000 years, which is kind of hard to imagine, but we had seven cycles of glacial advances and retreats, and then the last ice age stopped about 7,000 years ago, and that's when this current modern climate era kicked in, and as did human civilization. Most of this change now in our climate has occurred, the warming at least, has occurred in the last 35 years. All of that has led to then warming oceans, shrinking of the ice sheets. To give you an idea, Greenland is losing billions of tons of ice per year. Glaciers are once again retreating, our sea levels are rising. Certainly we have an increase in extreme weather events. We see that almost every day, and our ocean is acidifying. And the ocean absorbs about 2 billion tons of carbon dioxide a year, which is leading to that acidification. So all of that affects human health and ecosystems and biodiversity, not just humans. Global warming, kind of getting back to your initial question, global warming is really more of a descriptive term, kind of just an increase in the average temperature of the Earth's near surface and oceans in recent decades. Climate change means changes in the climate, actual changes. Some people like to say disruption, where we have changing temperatures and rainfall and snow and wind patterns. And this will last for decades and longer as our Earth warms. A couple words that come in periodically that I'm not wild about using, but you might see them in the literature is climate chaos or climate weirding, where the climate's kind of jumping back and forth between various weather events. But climate stress and climate hazards, those two words which ultimately kind of go into climate shocks that you may hear people talk about. But climate stresses are kind of what we're seeing now. They're persistent, low-intensity things that are happening like soil erosion, degradation of our coastal ecosystems that you certainly see in the state of Florida and any low-lying area in the world. We're seeing salt water intrusion into groundwater, aquifer systems, soil evaporation, things like this, a more slower, lower intensity as opposed to climate hazards that are losses that damage systems. So huge hurricanes and large rainfall, landslides, forest fires that we've seen in the West Coast in California. So there are various descriptive terms, but whatever one uses, the important thing I think is that it, it's happening now, and it's all affecting health. You know, health is, as you know, I mean, your audience knows, health is really related, interconnected to almost everything that happens in our lives in the world. So it's really important that physicians, as, as healers, as caregivers of their patients, and as scientists, that we grab hold of this and really uh, try and get our arms around it, because it is complex, and we're living, I mean, we're living through something that we've never experienced in human life before. We're breathing air that is laden with 
CO2 that's never happened before. So it's important for us to kind of lead on caring for our patients. I agree with you entirely. It's interesting that the 16th and the 17th U.S. Surgeon Generals have both said that this is a very real problem. So it is coming from a more medical perspective. It brings up two questions in my mind. The first is, from a medical point of view, especially with children, but obviously into adults as well, is it interfering with their maturation process, neurological developments? Are you seeing or are other people seeing oddities or unusual presentations, medical problems that maybe we never saw before. And of course, and just to throw into the pot, big thing that's always a product of discussion is where does autism come from? Well, absolutely. Well, and that quite honestly, it's one of the things that led me to researching and, and ultimately joining Physicians for Social Responsibility because in starting the chapter in Florida, because as a, a practicing pediatrician, just, I was in private practice and academic practice. And during that time of almost 40 years, I was just seeing a lot more kids with autism and other soft kind of neurologic signs, milder developmental issues. And I thought, wow, this can't be genetic. And so I started looking into things. And I think there is, it's often related, but it's often hard to say, well, yes, this causes this. But I think through the science, there is a lot of science now that supports the impact of our changing our warming climate on health. But one thing you can look at is the Zika virus. I, I wasn't taught about Zika in medical school. I don't think you were. No, I wasn't, it wasn't even a, It wasn't even a word that we any of us knew until a couple of years ago. So now we're seeing children, babies that were infected in utero and have health issues microcephaly being one, of course, developmental delays. So there are so many physical and, and mental health impacts and community health impacts from climate change. And look at the increase in allergies that we're seeing in our patients. The allergy season starts early. It's more intense. CO2 drives more allergens. We're seeing more vector-borne diseases. We're seeing more more asthma, exacerbations of asthma, of course, direct injuries, obviously, from hurricanes and things, and then heat stress. Heat is going to be big in the coming decades, I think. I think that as the climate warms, it's up to about one degree Celsius now, which is about 1.8, I think, degrees Fahrenheit. And our goal uh, was at the Paris Agreement that was signed some years ago that this administration plans to, to get the U.S. out of, but the plan at that time was to keep the temperatures of the globe under 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit. And there's a big reason to do that because when you get over that 1.5, and I think you had asked me once about is it that sensitive? It really is. There's a big difference between 1.5 degrees centigrade and 2 degrees centigrade. There are agencies now like NASA and others that are modeling even 0.1 degree, so tenths of a degree, and what that's going to do to climate and weather and health and heat. A lot of parts of the country aren't used to heat. They don't. They can't accommodate. They don't have air conditioning. We've even found in in this country, we found a doubling of deaths in high school football players from heat stroke because they've just not been educated yet and acclimate to the increase in the warming. It's sort of subtle at this point, but thousands and thousands of people have died all over the globe from excessive heat, and that, that will only get worse in the coming decades. It makes it, I think, difficult to explain, what's the word I'm looking for, to, to detail that 
minor degrees, like people will say, what, the difference between 72 degrees and 75 degrees, that's going to make such a big difference. It speaks to the incredible balance that exists in our ecosystem. And yes, it does. But it's hard to tell people that these these little numbers, it's like when I talk to people about pollution, they'll say, so I take my Prozac and I throw it into the river. It's one Prozac. Look how big the river is. It's the balance. So this is what I hear you saying. It absolutely is. And I, I, and I know there are folks that don't believe this. And I think that when 97% of the world's scientists say that, yes, this climate change is a real thing and it's happening now and it's largely human-driven, largely from fossil fuels, but not totally, and small degrees make a difference. The IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is a UN-mandated report, has done a number of reports, but just did an update on 1.5 degrees primarily focused on the United States. It's very obvious looking at that report that if your temperature, if your global temperatures go higher than 1.5 to 2, there are significant things that are going to happen. Thousands more people are going to die of heat. There are going to be more intense storms. And if you go even higher, it, it only worsens. And, you know, the nutritional value of food is going to decline. There's going to be more drought. You know what the algae blooms have been in Florida this year? They've been devastating. So I think, you know, you're going to see all of that. And you're going to see more anxiety, despair, depression, post-traumatic stress. I, I kind of like to think of it. I don't know if, there's a, if this is a real word yet, but, but to me it's, it's actually pre-traumatic stress. People even now that I've talked to that are kind of stressing because of where they live. They live in low-lying flooding areas. Tampa Bay is, going to, is one of the top areas in the country to be affected by climate change as is, of course, South Florida. So people are stressing and anxious, and and it will cause, even in our country, and we're pretty affluent, but it will cause some forced migration. And globally, we're already seeing that. I think a lot of people, and perhaps I'm being too simplistic, but they don't want to be bothered by this. They can't perhaps see that it will be in their lifetime. They can't visualize that Fort Lauderdale will be underwater or seawater, saltwater will be going into the freshwater, etc. So how do we get people to move? Do we need to panic? Are we to that level yet? What advice would we give to just the general person out there? Well, I tell you, I give a fair number of talks to communities, and I, I, don't, I don't think I press the panic button. But I do try and impress on them that I, I believe, and, and I think there's enough literature to support this, that we are in a crisis situation as far as climate and health. And I try and stick to more to the health voice. You know, it's going to have huge impacts on economy and tourism and all sorts of things. But I think that we are in a crisis situation where we really need to all of us working together. I mean, there are individual things that we can do. There are community things we can do. Obviously, state, national is big policy. Because if we don't do these things, we're going to undermine the last half century of gains that we've made in public health. Think about that. And I think that this IPCC report, as well as a Lancet report that just came out, and you know that's one of the most prestigious medical journals in the, in the world, and a recent national climate assessment, which is for the, the U.S. only, 
but it, it says now that if things are moving faster than they had they had initially predicted, and we have now about 12 years, maybe 20, but they're saying 12 in the IPCC report to act fast, to get off fossil fuels, to get on renewable energy, to figure out ways to absorb more CO2 at the same time that we're cutting down millions and millions of hectares, acres of trees and forests all over the globe. We have to stop that. And so I think we do have not a lot of time to work on it. And yes, many of us may not be here in 12 or 20 years, but by George, our kids and our grandbabies and all of the kids that follow in the world, this is what we're going to leave them. I think it just behooves us to figure out a way to come together and make sure that we're leaving a sustainable planet for those generations that follow us. I agree with you entirely, and I think that one of the mandates of the medical field is to make sure that for all our wonderful new medications and surgical procedures and all the attached, we need a place that's still healthy to live. These are the sort of things that people need to very seriously study and learn how to maintain some sustainability in our lives given the way the world is changing. Lynn Ringenberg is a professor emeritus at the University of South Florida. She's done a great deal of work on climate change and its issues as it relates to public health. Lynn, thank you very much. I wish we had hours. We could go into greater detail. People need to hear this, not to be frightened, but to be serious and mature about it. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Strauss. I really appreciate it. Thank you much to your listeners, too. Thank you. I could go on for hours. I mean, I just have, I have so many things to say. I have a hard time keeping my grand rounds to an hour. Well, it's the topic also just invites discussion. 